like magic is fourth dimensional, right? That it is, you know, it's magic is not like making somebody disappear or making some stupid shit happen or somebody's possessed. It's fourth dimensional time ripples. And when I saw that, I was just convinced that I was part of whatever this web is. I didn't even know that, you know, I barely knew about Penny Well, I knew about Penny Well, but I didn't know the depth that you guys took it to at the time. And I was just like, wow, man. I mean, <laughs> you can't tell me that these things are not all related. college, I remember encountering the dark side of the rainbow urban legend, that if you press play on the classic Pink Floyd album, Dark Side of the Moon, at the moment the black and white MGM line appears on The Wizard of Oz, the music synchronizes perfectly with the film, so much so that some people believe Pink Floyd composed the album to the film. Drummer Nick Mason says that's rubbish, and jokingly told MTV in 1997 that the album was actually composed to the sound of music that hasn't deterred the persistence of the dark side of the rainbow urban legend. If you've ever done it, the way the two sync up in a number of places is pretty amazing. Dorothy starts to run during the line, No One Told You When to Run, in the song Time. David Gilmore sings Home, Home Again in the Breathe reprise as the fortune teller tells Dorothy to return home. And Brain Damage starts to play at the same time as the scarecrow sings If I Only Had a Brain as he dances on the yellow brick road while Roger Waters sings, Gotta Keep the Loonies on the Path. The great gig in the sky matches up with the appearance of the tornado, and in the second act, as the cash register dings on the song Money, Dorothy opens up the door to the house to find the colorful munchkin land. To top it all off, the album closes with a heartbeat as the audience watches Dorothy put her ear to the tin man's chest. But is the album really syncing up with the film? Or is this just another form of pareidolia? Is it really just me serving as the observer that provides the context and connection between the two? I'm hearing the lyrics and seeing the scenes on the screen, and it's me that interprets them as having qualities that relate to each other. Word and sound only have meaning because they're coming together through me. I'm the interface that creates the correspondences. But does that make them any less true? Maybe Pink Floyd never intended for Dark Side of the Moon to sync up with the Wizard of Oz film, but maybe in a cosmic sense, they do as an unintended consequence. Maybe they're connected in ways that we just don't understand yet. Before we completed production on the first season of Penny Royal, we came into possession of a strange set of documents that on the surface appeared to describe a vast network of financial transactions and international bank accounts. These documents traced the movement of gold out of the Philippines into the U.S. and Europe. 
and then finally into the Middle East where the gold was converted into oil interests. The extremely weird part was that additionally, within the documents were mixed correspondence and articles, letters and newspaper clippings, memos and notes that related directly to what we were researching at the time that we received them. And in some cases, parts of the documents exactly mirrored what we were researching, details of which would be impossible to know. It created a strange kind of terror. Why would someone give us a set of documents that contained references to the research we were conducting? Did they want us to know that they were watching? But also, why would anyone be watching us conduct such obscure and weird research? And in the course of trying to understand why that could be the case, I thought about the dark side of the rainbow and wondered if we were experiencing a similar form of pareidolia. Were we seeing connections between these strange documents and our research only because we were the intersection between the two? Were we the interpreting interface, providing the synchronicity? And these things, in fact, were not connected or related in any way. Maybe. But the way the documents came into our possession and how they relate to the Penny Royal mystery, I believe, reveals an even weirder connection to something much larger. And like so much of this mystery, the connections between the documents and our research seem to be another wink from the cosmos or whatever might be orchestrating all of this. There, there's too much weirdness in how it's done. This town is a cult. That fucker didn't climb on the house and paint that. You know? I mean, it's all very orchestrated. You know? It's supposed to be, it's supposed to be over the top. How we received the documents was incredibly weird. We initially were approached by a film producer that I'll refer to in this episode as Peter, who requested that we not disclose his identity. And pursuant to that request, any time his real name is mentioned in an interview has been replaced by Peter or bleeped out. If the documents are real, which we'll discuss in this episode, and in case the originator of the documents might still be alive, we've also removed direct references to his name and replaced it with a tone. Okay, so yeah, so I'll just start with the beginning. So... How did I get to Somerset? Um, I came to Somerset in January of 2020, right before the pandemic hit, which is something else we'll get into, I'm sure. And I was in Somerset, Kentucky, and I was just there to do survey work because I travel the country doing uh, surveys for fiber optic cable runs. So they sent me to Somerset. That was like my home base. So like, yeah, there's a lot of jobs around there. I'm like, okay, cool. So I get to the Holiday Inn Express there and I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna randomly, I've, I've watched all the Netflix I can watch for now. I'm just gonna check in and see what's going on and Hellier and see if, you know, and I type in Hellier and then I see Hellier season two. And then I almost shit myself when I see that after researching Hellier season two, which is fully out now, 
that it's in, it takes place in freaking Somerset, Kentucky. And I was a big, big fan. Um, but I was a big fan of Hellier One. Uh, because I thought it was something different. It was the first, like, kind of, uh, paranormal investigation series that had a, kind of almost a true crime element to it, and I really liked it. And I was like, holy shit, season two takes place here. So I started watching a few episodes, and I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm in Somerset, <clears throat> and I saw Kyle in your appearance and I'm like holy shit man I'm gonna reach out to Kyle I think I watched almost all the season one night the next night I reached out to Kyle Kyle Cadell the you know the owner of the Somerset Paranormal Museum and I was like hey man um, I, I actually called the number to the Paranormal Museum I got some other phone number for like a nearby, like a business like across the way in the, in the basement of his old building. And they're like, oh yeah, um, can you hit him up on Facebook? Because this is our number nine. So I'm like, okay, cool. Uh, so at this point, of course, the museum is inside the Carnegie Community Arts Center. At this point, there was a restaurant right next to us that had their own phone line. One day, I go in, and the woman that runs the restaurant said that she that someone called the restaurant looking for me. And so in order to even make that connection, you'd have to look up the museum, see that it's in this building, the Carnegie, look up the Carnegie, and look up what other businesses are in the Carnegie, uh, and you'd find the restaurant, and then call that restaurant and say, is Kyle there? Which is strange, you know? Yeah, she left me a message and said it was some producer that said he wanted to talk to you. I was like, okay. It, like, it, it was very strange. And so I was like, hey, yeah, uh, we don't have a phone number, sorry. But yeah, uh, and he's like, well, I'm actually in town. Uh, I'm a producer. I've worked on a few movies. And uh, we're talking about doing a horror film based in Kentucky. Uh, and I want to see if, if I could consult, like pay you for your time to consult and uh, I was like yeah absolutely that sounds incredible you know so I went and met him at a local bar here he's very interesting character uh he he is definitely uh, a producer uh but he also has this day job right now where he scouts uh for fiber opt fiber optic cable installation and uh so that's part of the reason why he was here in Kentucky and on top of that, was looking like still scouting and stuff. And I do think he tried to bury the lead a little bit because he was a Hellier fan. We ended up going out to one of the caves together. Yeah, we went on this adventure. We did a, a, a spirit box session in in one of those caves. Uh, not Wind Cave, but the other one, you know, back there. So I hit him up on Facebook. I'm like, hey man, I'll pay you like, uh, I don't know, 150 bucks if you can take me around, show me around, because watch Hellier season two. And we went up that night, and dude, like, upon first meeting, like, I was like, I instantly bond with this guy. He's totally into the paranormal. He, and he knows the paranormal, like you do too. Um, and, 
So Powell took me on this world tour of Somerset, which is one of the most fun and amazing, uh, fun may not be the right word, but most interesting and enlightening things I've ever been on. We went in a cave that was uh, in this just mysterious location, like uh, we had to climb a fence. And as we're going through Somerset, and he's showing me the town i'm like holy shit man there's so much that hellier season two didn't talk about and there is so much weirdness going on here he left and stayed in touch eventually we've we tossed around the idea he he has a business partner who's from gold country from yeah, it's Northern California, one of the highest gold rush uh, area towns. It's a beautiful area, and he has a lot of connections there. Um, so he had already been planning the show that he approached Nathan and I about um, called uh, Ghosts of Gold Country, I think was the tentative name. He basically just wanted to pick us up and drop us off in Grass Valley and, like, go at it, boys, and, like, start digging into everything there. We talked about that, and eventually that idea, you know, we we transformed it more into making uh, a tentative documentary-type show about our current investigation, about everything we're going on here with with Pennyroll, the Kentucky Anomaly, with everything here. He is not only our friend, but has gotten intimately involved with all of the things that we've been researching and uh, has actually ended up with this set of documents that we now are in possession of and on a completely separate solo adventure, he somehow came into years before meeting us, possession of these documents that detail, among other things, the movement of gold in and out of the country, some of it sanctioned by possibly the government. He told us he almost no one knew about these documents and he eventually uh, made us turn our phones off <laughs> and was very, very concerned and eventually showed us these documents. The way I found the documents, um, (laughs) little did I know, I get in there and I meet the owner and then I start hearing about these documents. I'm like, okay, what documents? And he's like, oh yeah, money you you can't imagine and stuff like that. I'm like, well, why don't you you show me? So one of the old tenants in his house had these documents. They were in a series of boxes. And they were the most utterly insane set of documents that I've ever seen in my life or probably will see in my life. It had bank accounts from the Marcos family in the Philippines. It had the swift number of the Saudi of a Saudi Arabian princess. It had Chinese oil deals. Uh, in, in what must have been the trillions of dollars. I, I mean, to see these documents, it, it, it was truly, I do think, and you know, there's disagreements among others who've seen them, but I think we have seen the literal evidence of the Black, what is it, the Black Eagle Trust, or whatever that is, the, the, the Golden Lily, the Golden Lily Trust, yes, the Japanese version of, so 
There's two trusts. The Black Eagle Trust is the Nazi version, and the Golden Lily Trust is the Japanese version. And I think that I was witnessing the Golden Lily Trust, but I do think I saw Nazi figures on those documents who were managing it. You know, there's a lot of debate over the validity of these documents, and I, I don't know the answer either way to some of that. But what I do know is that there were, there were documents in there that told me that this was very, very serious. The owner of the house in Escondido wanted to, quote, sell them to CNN. At that point, once I saw the documents, I was so freaking paranoid about them that I knew that I had to strategically take them out of the house because anybody who was willing to disseminate them like that was going to cause a lot of trouble. And not only for them, but for others. Uh, so I did strategically kind of copy them and, and take them out of the house because I, I thought that his method was very irresponsible um, and that it was going to cause a lot of harm. So I copied the documents and uh, I have shown them to a few people for what I believe to be the good of humanity. But I was on some kind of synchronistic path <clears throat> that led me, of all people, to those documents. So the first time talks to me about these documents, he makes us both turn our phones off and uh, we walk away from him. And he tells me, uh, he tells me how he procured them and um, kind of briefly goes over what he thinks overall they mean. And they seem kind of like a snapshot that someone has grabbed to have evidence of specific interactions in a much larger conspiracy. So it almost seems like a personal insurance policy, you know, just so it's like I have this dirt that will keep me in the clear, you know. And so he was very concerned, uh, made me promise not to tell anyone except uh, Nathan and Darren. And uh, his story has changed several times, and it's definitely not... The details are enough to make you question it, but not to enough that it ever conflicts, you know? But it, it's enough to make us, you know, almost suspicious at points. Like, well, for instance, he's done his own research into these documents. And at one point, one of the people mentioned is Steven Snyder, who was we had already interviewed for Penny Royal. So that was it's terrifying almost for a second. But yeah, and then he... he told us this, this original story about how he found it and then when we eventually talked to, to him about it again which to be honest was a year later it was a little bit different you know it wasn't I don't know it seemed like a couple of the people had changed places uh, initially but again he had found the documents six years before he told them to us so but yeah there's a lot of those kind of strange things where it's I don't I it never came off as malicious but it almost seemed like he was protecting himself just in case again he was super paranoid in the first place when I, when he brought up the documents a couple of weeks passed before we even really looked at the documents once they've been copied onto USB drives but when I actually opened the files up and looked closely at the documents I lost my shit I panicked called Darian and rushed over to his house to discuss what we were going to fucking do. Because at first glance, having never seen any documents like this before, I was fucking terrified to have them in our possession. 
Some of the financial documents, which included international wire transfers and swift transactions from the 1980s and 1990s, were unlike anything I'd ever seen. For almost a decade, I worked as a forensic investment analyst, digesting stockbroker and trading accounts, so I have quite a bit of experience with financial transactions, but I'd never seen anything like this. And the amounts of the transactions ranged anywhere from $100 million to $500 million. We also couldn't find any of the email addresses in any public-facing correspondence, which meant that they were either fake or that they were actually real and at such a high level that these individuals did not deal with the public or use their emails in public correspondence. Most of these emails were between high-ranking government officials, state-owned Asian banks, or members of the Saudi government. And it stands to reason that they would not have their emails circulating on the public internet. So what were we looking at? It's, it, uh, that's what I've tried to like piece together from like going through them. I've tried to look at, you know, where could these have originated? Because they cover, you know, quite a few years. There's a uh, different, there's a lot of different sort of disconnected things in there too. There's some really strange pamphlets, sort of anti-Jewish pamphlets that I think are strange with notes on them. It, it's it's like, where could they have originated and in what form could someone have gotten them? Are they scans in a folder? Are they like, and why would someone print out these specific things and put them, you know, in that way? So, you know, the, if, if there is an angle in, in, in it, then it could be in sort of clearing the name of the Marcos family in that sense, you know, that, that definitely could be part of it. Yeah, it mentions uh, Mitch McConnell, which is strange. You know, it's like, it's like there were so many different little pieces that connected to what we were what we were looking at, you know. And I don't think I had, I had heard of Yamashita's gold or anything like that, but the Cleve Baxter thing was something we were actively looking at at the time that, that we got this, right? The Cardo ends up being connected to the whole story because of, you know, all of the stuff that he was publishing. That was, you know, in the background or, or on the periphery of what we were looking at. Yeah, I mean, we it is it is funny that we were looking at um, at at these at all of these originations or the original ideas of Hoffman and Grimstead and how they were connected to Cardo and some of his writings. You know, I had been looking into some stuff about mushrooms and uh, sort of a, a mushroom superorganism concept that some people have that are more in the sort of psychedelic spectrum. And I was kind of digging into that angle on that. And when I was sort of researching some of that, I came across this Cleve Baxter story. And he was really, really famous at, at around this time for being the first person to apply polygraph techniques to plants. And backing that up a little, it's also important to say that he really is sort of the father of poly uh, polygraphing in general. There were what, Cleve Baxter schools of, of poly is it polygraphy? I guess poly I guess it's polygraphy that he was that he was running, and that that was sort of the standard for everyone to use, right? And so uh, he he applied supposedly applied these polygraph techniques to listen to murmurations or or. Uh, signals that plants were producing. This is actually in Cleve Baxter's memoirs as well, this event. 
at the time he had published some of his research and now a lot of people criticize this research because it didn't seem like it was published in peer review journals he had been um anyway he had been publishing this research and doing working on this stuff and one day the general shows up who was working with the cia and asks to see his research and he shows it to him and everything and then he tells him about about that he's going to be able to speak at the cosmos club about this about this research so the cosmos club itself the, it's it is a little mysterious as to what it is it is old though it is you know i think from 1878 the the logo has some some sort of free masonic symbols but it's kind of hard to tell what you know what the what the goal of it is there are a lot of pictures uh from the inside of it so it's not necessarily a top secret place a lot of people have gone there i found uh, several people on uh, in news groups had gone to events there and met people there and stuff. So it, it seems to have a lot to do with French and American connections. And that was sort of the theme of this of this one, where Jean-Marie Le Pen, who was a far-right candidate in France, was visiting and ends up connecting him with a lot of people that day. He mentions in his memoirs that the Clintons really well, he introduced him to Reagan at this event and to Walt Disney's brother. And he talked about how this day opened so many doors for him, for him, all based on this, this connection that made with him. And so in these notes that we have, we really have the notes of Jean-Marie Le Pen, who, is, who has written in his own handwriting a, uh, a speech to Prince Andrew in, on one case and... Uh, and in the other case, it is about uh, Cleve Baxter. And I believe this is where John Marie Le Pen sort of makes these, these uh, connections between the, the, the American and French sort of ideals. And it's interesting in the Prince Andrew thing, too, that he refers to him as a great Anglo-Saxon, which I think is kind of strange. There was scans of documents and scans of emails and, and printouts of, of things. And there, the, there was definitely some work by someone, probably Peter, who was doing work on trying to understand where the places were and, and all of that. And so one, in that section of the documents, there's a part about that, that is really the arrest warrant that Greg Raven posted to his website from Greg Raven's website. So someone had found that and used that as a source of what we would call some of the documents. Um, that's mostly on the end of trying to piece together who was. And it's important to say also that that blog file was incorrect in a lot of ways. The, the person, uh, there's a lot of in, in the world and it's kind of surprising how many of them end up in uh, diplomatic or political roles, uh, and so this person who was compiling this these log files had had kind of confused different and tried to associate them together. So the one we're talking about is the Australian French guy who had who had um, came from Australia to the United States and then subsequently involved in the far right wing in the United States. It's uh, another thing to say about him is that he really surprised people in Australia in working with Palestinian or, or people who are sort of supporting Palestinian causes from from that angle, because it seemed like that was a very uh, leftist cause. So he was almost suspe suspected 
of harboring leftist tendencies in Australia, even though he had only been known for being on the far right. And so it's really similar to what happened to Cardo with the IHR. Uh, it's almost the exact same situation. The other thing uh, is that there was a mention of, of um, going to give some, or in, in these documents, there's a, uh, some documents about the Cosmos Club and visit to the Cosmos Club. And in those documents, we were able to verify or validate that these, th these events happened because a French politician by the name of Jean-Marie Le Pen had written his memoirs after the documents, the, the memoirs were published after the documents were released. And he mentions this exact same day that he had with going to the Cosmos Club. So he uh, also uh, harbors uh, Holocaust denial views. portion of the documents discussing Cardo center on his home in Escondido, California, and a series of court cases and legal actions aggregated on a website called the Willis Carto Archive, which thoroughly presents various scandals and schemes that Cardo was involved in, bankruptcy documents, and also criminal investigations. The website states that its goal is to become a central location for information about Willis Allison Carto and Elizabeth Oldemeyer Carto embezzlers and patriots for profit. The motivation for exposing the Cartos and their activities to the life they shun is not born from their ruination and despoilation of the American right-wing and populist political scene, although there is little argument that they have done just that. Most likely, Peter also discovered this archive while researching the content of the documents and downloaded portions of it, specifically those involving Cardo and as far as Willis Cartel, he was a friend, a good friend of who I call the the originator of these documents. Who's an individual that was located in that area, who I think we're kind of leaving anonymous because he's still around, and you know we don't have a lot of proof on the validity of them and, and whatnot. But Willis Cartel was essentially a very high up figure in the American nationalist movement. Um, he was involved in Holocaust denial, uh, stuff like that. And he was involved in these bizarre schemes with this individual uh, to kind of loot money from various like funding sources to the far right. Uh, one of them was uh, Thomas Edison's uh, I believe it was his grandniece or something, or his granddaughter or something, uh, ran a fund that she paid to people like him and Mark Weber, who's a famous Holocaust denier, and others. Um, and Willis Carto lived in Escondido as well. To me, this is just my opinion, um, I, he's so bizarre in that he was super well-connected. Uh, you could tell that he was part of some operation, some kind of extra-national paramilitary operation, which I believe the progenitor of these documents was a part of as well. 
you know, other than that, I I found his involvement as something like a minor pawn in the organization. He, there is there is never a point where I was like, oh, Will's card, yeah, this this guy's calling shots. They're, they're, that that was never the case in my analysis of the documents. He, I don't discount his role as being a part of something much bigger. Well, I mean, he was a major architect. I mean, what I would, you know, essentially think of is, um, well, you know, essentially you have sort of like the three, I would say, kind of separate strands of like um, American conspiracy theory. These all sort of originated uh, from the 1950s. And um, the first two were based around two specific groups, the John Birch Society and the Liberty Lobby. And the third one didn't really have like a formal organization. It's uh, more sort of like the posse comitatus thing that was embraced by a lot of like the militia movements. And this sort of like later uh, morphed into the sovereign citizen movement. And, you know, this whole like, I don't have to pay taxes because I can, you know, cite some kind of arcane past in the, what is it, the maritime law code or something like that. And, yeah, you know, this kind of thing. As far as the John Birch Society, you know, branch goes, this is where you get a lot of your, uh, you know, anti-Federal Reserve, anti-UN, a lot of your, like, hardcore everything is like this Byzantine communist conspiracy that's being carried out by wealthy capitalists um, so that they can impose a communist one-world government by the UN. Uh, Alex Jones, and I mean, a lot of this kind of stuff is very much, uh, you know, a direct successor to the John Birch Society. I mean, of course, Alex Jones spoken many a times about his love of the JBS and so forth. So the Birchers were, I guess you would say, the respectable face of conspiracy theory, if such a thing exists. Uh, the Liberty Lobby was the not respectable face. Um, this is really where, like, a lot of your, you know, hardcore anti-Semitic, you know, white supremacist type stuff comes from. Um, now, of course, the uh, founder and longtime head of the Liberty Lobby was uh, Sir Willis Cardo. Uh, he also was the longtime proprietor of Noontide Press as well, which uh, published any number of uh, fascinating works over the years. Now, an interesting thing about the Liberty Lobby was that it uh, came out in uh, 1958, which was um, a really a paramount year. Uh, it was during this year that the National Security Council um, passed a memorandum, I believe it was, uh, advocating the use of military personnel and carrying out uh, propaganda efforts uh, among the American public. And um, this was sort of uh, going against the backdrop of these uh, military-industrial conferences that the National Security Council had been sponsoring, along with a lot of other interesting groups like the American Security Council, which was... Uh, the, you know, premier right-wing uh, think tank during much of the Cold War era. It was uh, described by one researcher as the heart, if not the very soul, of the military-industrial complex. Uh, almost all of the major defense contractors were, you know, donors to it. It was heavily staffed by a lot of ex-CIA and military personnel, that type of thing. So the ASC was one of these groups uh, that was running this conference. Uh, another big player was the National Association of Manufacturers, uh, which was a big 
sponsor, incidentally, of the John Birch Society, of the Spiritual Mobilization Movement. And of course, you had individual members of NAM like uh, J. Howard Pugh, who would give major funding to things like the family, you know, aka the fellowship. So the National Association of Manufacturers was a major sugar daddy for, you know, what became like a lot of these far right movements. They were also involved in these military industrial conferences. So in the year of 1958, these military-industrial conferences set up this interesting entity known as the Institute for American Strategy, which principal purpose of it was political warfare, which was, um, of course, it encompassed psychological warfare and a lot of other things. Um, it was essentially full spectrum. Uh, and it uh, also advocated what was known as fourth dimensional warfare, which was probably an early version of what we would now think of as fourth generation warfare. Yeah, this thing was really interesting. Um, it showed up in 1958, just at the same time as the NSC was advocating a lot of the other stuff and you know during the same time frame you saw a lot of these other groups spring up like the liberty lobby there was the first attempt to set up um what was it the uh, world anti-communist league in mexico city in 1958 essentially you started seeing this whole network of these right-wing groups you know uh springing up in 1958 and a lot of them i think were a major part of political warfare psychological warfare that was aimed at the american public now there was a lot of outrage that started to come out around 1961 from william j fulbright uh the senator who had written a memorandum to John F. Kennedy, and he had drawn, you know, light on some of this stuff. Of course, the John Birch Society, uh, some of their literature had been used by Edwin Walker uh, to indoctrinate troops in Germany and that type of thing. Now, at the time, Fulbright had not been able to really show a direct link between what the, you know, the Institute for American Strategy was doing and then later the stuff that Walker was doing. But I mean, after looking at a lot of this material, it just seems evident there was a link. I mean, Robert Welch had been a member of the National Association of Manufacturers, the same group that was involved in these military industrial conferences, as were, I think, two or three of the other founders of the John Birch Society. And, you know, I want to point out, too, this is something that's ludicrous about this stuff. You know, people talk about the JBS as a fringe group. It, you know, at least three of its founding members have been former presidents of the National Association of Manufacturers, okay? This is the establishment. So it was set up by a lot of these industrial bigwigs who were, you know, in overlapping groups that were involved in these military-industrial conferences. And then on top of that, Robert Welch was a really good friend of a guy called Henry Regnery, the guy who founded Regnery Publishing, which was for years one of the biggest pushers of right-wing literature on the market. It was who published Man, God, and Yale by William Buckley and a lot of other storied literature along those lines. Now, Regnery was a member of the Institute for American Strategy. In fact, he was on the board of directors and he was also the group's treasurer and he was in contact with Robert Welch throughout a good chunk of the group's tenure. Yeah, you have a lot of these kind of interesting connections. Now, the Liberty Lobby in turn had a lot of overlap with the John Birch Society. And I think there might have even been a few guys who were tied in with some of the guys with the Institute for American Strategy. In this capacity, the Liberty Lobby was able to maintain a somewhat respectable uh, public presence in the 1960s. It was kind of, I think, towards the end of that decade that it really broke away from, you know, some of the quote unquote more reputable 
players in the far right and really went hardcore in the anti-Semitic tracks and so forth. If I'm not mistaken, this was like around the time when Carter really went in big, you know, with um, the Institute for Historical Review, the preeminent Holocaust denial agency, made some attempts to take over young Americans for freedom, which surely pissed off William F. Buckley to no end. Who knows? I mean, that might have been why he got drummed out of, um, you know, some of the more reputable circles. I mean, by all accounts, Buckley was a vindictive son of a bitch. Anyway, Cardo was doing all of this kind of crazy stuff. And yeah, that was uh, kind of his legacy, you know, peddling a lot of this, you know, just really vile, I mean, racist literature, which, uh, you know, was, I guess, on par with what some of the Lenin uh, LaRouche people were doing, but probably more sensational in a lot of cases. You know, in fairness to Cardo, I mean, he did publish some decent stuff. I mean, at times as well, it was uh, what uh, they had the one ex-CIA officer uh, who had been published by Noontime. In fact, I think he had published a couple of uh, publications by ex-spooks along those lines, which, you know, it was this kind of stuff that you know, it gave Cardo some semblance of legitimacy, but I mean, the guy was just really, uh, you know, I mean, I think ultimately, uh, you know, a con man, really, uh, the guy I just think was sort of, uh, I mean, almost like a shock jock in a lot of ways, uh, you know, and I have to, you know, in some ways, I mean, you can almost wonder, I mean, if his embrace of, um, you know, this really far right, you know, anti-Semitic stuff was because that was where the market was in some senses by the late 1960s. You know, there were so many people that were playing in for, you know, what was becoming the new right movement and the more respectable fields. I mean, who knows? Maybe Carter saw a business opportunity. Um, certainly, as I mean, you know, you and I are aware uh, he has been involved in some unscrupulous business activities in his day. Shit, dude. I, I took out these two interlibrary loan books, uh, Willis Cardo. It's just called Willis Cardo. And the I think it's just called Willis Cardo and the American Far Right. Really good official biography um, that he allowed this guy to do before he died. I think it details, I think it has some testimony by by Grimstead talking about when he met him. And it's is pretty, pretty early on. And um, he was really like a, you know, a father figure to him and Hoffman. I mean, he really For made real? an impression. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shit. Cardo, Cardo is like the money man behind. He's a, the one who put everyone together. He's the one who presented a a more uh, um, media face to the far right. I mean, he was like the the nexus of the far right from the fifties through the 80s. I mean, it's it, car, it's hard to not see Cardo's tentacles in any of that. So he was really inspirational to those guys, master propagandists. Um, so I'm sure that those guys learned a lot because that's what they are essentially is, you know, propagandists. Well, um, and that's really what most of the, that whole, that, that whole scene always was, was really just publishing. Noontide Press. All that, yeah. We started with something called Just Right, um, Liberty Lobby, uh, National Youth Alliance, which is interesting because the guy who goes on to form the Asatru Free Assembly and some of the like early 80s Nordicist stuff was in that in the, the 60s and 70s. And so it's hard to not find Cardo, man. Everything is just revolving around Cardo. Thank you.
General Tomoyuki Yamashita, the commander of the Japanese military during World War II, helped his country amass a fortune in gold looted from banks, museums, private properties, and even religious temples from all over Asia. Jewelry, coins, art, and even golden Buddhas were all melted down to create bars of gold bullion known as the Golden Lily in reference to the lily stamped on each bar. This gold was meant to fund the extended Japanese war effort, but ultimately the Japanese Empire surrendered after the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki by atomic bombs. To keep the gold out of Allied hands so that it could be used as part of a counterinsurgency, General Yamashita secretly transported it to the Philippines and buried the gold in several undisclosed underground locations, which were then sealed with dynamite, often with the soldiers and workers trapped inside, or executed to prevent knowledge of the gold's location from escaping Yamashita's inner circle. Yamashita was soon after captured and tried for war crimes. After he was found guilty, he was sentenced to death by hanging in 1946. The locations of the hidden gold died with him. I did some uh, I did some digging into this story because of how much gold is mentioned in the documents. And if you look up the story of Yamashita's gold, you'll find that it's a strange tale that has all of these roots right after the war, that the Empire of Japan, seeing that it was the end, had buried a series of gold caches around uh, Southeast Asia and mostly in the Philippines. That was already a legend before anyone even found anything. The idea was that they had tons of gold because they were an empire that controlled parts of, I mean, all of Japan, a lot of China, and a lot of the other countries around, including the Philippines. And so as the empire is crumbling, they're trying to preserve this wealth somehow, and they end up digging these tunnels in the Philippines and burying them in, in caves and stuff like that. So the, this Rojas guy, right, he ends up with a document in 1961 from a guy named Fuchugami. And he gets this document in Baguio City in the Philippines. And the guy claimed that his father was a member of the Japanese army and had drawn this map to all of Yamashita's treasures, right? So this guy, Rojas, was a was a treasure hunter already and a coin collector and all that. And so he kind of knew how to go about, you know, looking for these things. And he hires a, pe- uh, a, a group of people and they go down into to digging into one of these spots and they end up hitting like a concrete area. They get into that and they find a golden Buddha statue that they say weighs three tons. And the golden Buddha statue has a lot of interesting qualities because it was seen by so many people. Rojas himself reported this finding to the Marcos government. And he, he made a kind of a big deal about finding it in general. So the, between the time it had been found and that he started to have trouble out of it, there were many, many witnesses who saw this statue. So it, anyway, they, they takes like, I think, 11 men with ropes to, to pull it up out of the ground. They start, you know, messing around with it. They realize that the head kind of could fold back. And then inside of it is just piles of uncut diamonds. 
he uh, starts to you know tell people there's a newspaper article. There is a newspaper article where uh, a, a journalist takes a picture of it with him. There's many uh, confirmations that it was pure gold. So I think it was 24 karat gold. And the story was that there were many of these Buddhist statues. This was, I think, one of 12. They take the statue away, then they, they give him another one that is like a knockoff of it. It's not real gold, and the head is detachable. All of these details come out in a court case in Hawaii, in which this is this is adjudicated as the, as the largest settlement in, in history for something like this. I think they award him $22 billion, you know, as, as a result of his loss of this statue. He was also tortured, which is important. He was tied up and beaten with a rubber mallet until he was unconscious several times. And uh, he won that that human rights violation case as well. That that's the story of Yamashita's gold from that perspective. The so I, you know you you wonder about all of these huge quantities of gold. In this case, and most people estimate that Yamashita's gold was uh, six thousand metric tons. There are references to about double that amount in the documents. The a lot of the uh, the sort of online legends you read about it involve it part of it being stored in Fort Knox. And so supposedly uh, so many thousand tons are stored there. So I kind of dug into how much gold is supposedly at Fort Knox and how much is in circulation and all of that. And so, you know, because you're, you're thinking this has got to be like, you know, 10% of the world's gold supply or something. But it turns out that there's quite a bit of gold in circulation. There's about 220,000 metric tons of gold that has been excavated already and about 57 billion or 57 thousand tons that is yet to be excavated. The amount that was stored by the federal government at the height of storing gold at Fort Knox was about 20,000 tons, 20,000 metric tons. In the Nixon administration, that had gone down to about 6,000 metric tons. So the, the amount of gold being talked about in the documents is more than the amount of gold that was supposedly at Fort Knox at the time that these things happened. But that's, it's hard to say. You know, there are, there's no references to Fort Knox in the documents, but there are quite a few references to the U.S. government moving a lot of Yamashita's gold out into black money accounts that, you know, ended up funding uh, intelligence operations around the country. So the idea there is that as the American government began to find out about this, they sent a, a general in who I think found 170 caves that, and some of them contained some of this treasure, and then that money was you know, funneled out to to accounts. The the gold in the documents is none of that American money, though. It's all sort of on the Marcos side of the thing. It's interesting that there are different motives for you know whatever the truth is in this situation. On the part of the Marcos family, it's it's a good idea to say that it came from from Yamashita's gold because their claim against them is that that was like a kleptocracy. They were taking the gold, they were taking money from the Philippine people and amassing it and then that's where their fortune came from, right? And so that's the entire reason they were ousted is that they were, you know, hoarding money. So it, from their perspective, claiming that, you know, it was actually gold found, you know, underground in tunnels, it makes them sound a lot less like people who are stealing from the, from the Philippine citizens, you know. Did we receive the documents so that we'd release them 
and give the Marcos family, specifically Emilda Marcos, leverage in their court case. Is that why Peter gave us the documents? I also started to wonder whether or not Peter might be an intelligence agent of some sort or affiliated with the FBI. But I was also starting to wonder the same thing about a lot of people. Things were quickly getting very paranoid and very fucking weird. In the sense of the overall story, it it would be convenient for the Marcos family to paint it that way. And that that is a good indicator that the documents are probably fake in that sense, you know, because it's like there is a political message there that, you know, people want to get across. And so it would be better for them to have sourced their, you know, riches from Yamashita's gold rather than from, you know, stealing it. So... Gold kept popping up over and over as a motif in our investigation. We were looking at gold certificates that James Shelby Downard had discovered in the Philippines and Mexico, which were mentioned in the Carnivals of Life and Death, and also appeared in the new manuscript, as well as in Skullduggery. And then when we received the documents to find that they involved Yamashita's gold and also included gold certificates was extremely strange. Why was gold popping up over and over again? And specifically, why were gold certificates popping up? He comes across those uh, million-dollar gold certificates in a few different places. He just discovers them, you know? It's like like he's in Mexico is where you... uh, is one of the stories. And Leon Trotsky is involved in the caper. And... uh, and what what I found that there was things called uh, gold certificates issued by the U.S. government, and during uh, the Depression, FDR basically when the New Deal was going on, uh, that's when the gold standard kind of they got rid of it basically, <laughs> and the gold certificates are were worthless. And I'm thinking Downard had some of those gold certificates, and that's part of his, uh, what he always talks about uh, getting ripped off and fucked over, and they, in the manuscript, he'll talk about it. They, he was left penniless without money, and the gold certificates come up time and time again, and so does FDR in the story, you know? So I think he, he might have been... You know, it, would have been, it was a delusion he had about that. And part of it was these uh, gold certificates he had became worthless because of uh, FDR, essentially. Yeah, that, that, that is strange that, that um, Downard's mentioning gold certificates in some of his earliest stuff. And here you're looking at gold certificates and, and the, the uh, transactions involving these huge amounts of gold. You know, it, it's so strange that what you're reading about in a totally fictitious way that you're you're thinking it's fictitious right it's like it's being manifested in the material of these documents it's really weird the largest denomination of currency ever printed by the bureau of engraving and printing was the $100,000 series of 1934 gold certificates featuring the portrait of president wilson These notes were printed from December the 18th, 1934 through January the 9th, 1935, 
and were issued by the Treasurer of the United States to Federal Reserve Banks only against an equal amount of gold bullion held by the Treasury Department. The notes were used only for official transactions between Federal Reserve Banks and were not circulated among the general public. Only 42,000 were ever printed. When the government stopped using them in the early 1960s, almost all of them were destroyed. Only three are officially known to have survived. One is housed at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco, one at the Bureau of Engraving and Printing, and one at the Smithsonian Institute. It is illegal for a private person to own one of these notes, and none have ever been discovered in private hands. This is what initially frightened us most, that we might actually have in our possession a scanned copy of one of these gold certificates. Several poor quality counterfeits have been discovered, most of which seem to originate from Asia and often from the Philippines. Some people have claimed they've even found bundles of these notes there. The gold certificates and the documents we received are in denominations of $500 million to reflect the value of the gold held in the Philippines after World War II, presumably in the hands of the Marcos family. They are no doubt counterfeits. Still, seeing these, even as scanned reproductions, and knowing that they're fake, all of this made us extremely nervous. I thought at any moment, agents from the FBI or the Treasury might kick down our door. The international monetary system after World War II was called the Bretton Woods System, named for the meeting of 44 countries in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, in 1944. The countries agreed to keep their currencies fixed to the dollar, and the dollar backed by gold. The Bretton Woods system became operational in 1958, and until the early 1970s, countries settled their international balances in dollars. And U.S. dollars were convertible to gold at a fixed exchange rate of $35 an ounce. The United States had the responsibility of keeping the dollar price of gold fixed and had to adjust the supply of dollars to maintain confidence in future gold convertibility. On August the 15th, 1971, Richard Nixon appeared on television to address the nation and the world and announced that the U.S. dollar would no longer be tied to gold. Nixon arguably had no choice because the system established at Bretton Woods was falling apart. Any country that built up a stock of dollars by running a trade surplus with the U.S. could exchange them for gold, and many countries were doing just that. Confidence in the dollar was decreasing because of rising U.S. inflation and widespread payment deficits. Gold reserves held in the vault of Fort Knox were rapidly being depleted, and Nixon stepped in to prevent any more gold from leaving the U.S., Shockwaves from the decision to break the link with gold have rippled down the decades. The creation of the euro, the hollowing out of U.S. manufacturing, the arrival of cryptocurrencies, and the ability of central banks to print seemingly unlimited quantities of money can all be traced back to August 1971. This is what most people don't understand about magic. They have this, like, almost Hollywood, ludicrous conception that once you conduct a ritual, you're going to see, like, a demon or something like that. And, you know, I'm sure there are rituals that go to that level. But the most important thing to impart on people is magic bends the fourth dimension. And if you do not 
If you are not prepared for that, you should never do a magic ritual. As I mentioned, gold has become a recurrent motif in this mystery. The deeper we've gotten, the more that gold certificates and lost gold and digital gold have become foundational elements to the mystery. And it seems to me that this is no coincidence, considering how it is that we have arrived at this point. Whether we're actually interacting with an intelligence of some sort, maybe even a complex information structure in the wild, or whether we're encountering archetypal forms, it appears to nonetheless be an invitation with a map. And the map is the road, and the road is paved in gold. I got into the alchemy stuff because I had I had started picking up uh, a few books on um, on different esoteric topics, and because I don't know, I didn't know anything about alchemy. Like a lot of people, I probably thought that, that at its most basic level. It was the story of transmuting other metals into gold for profit, right? What was interesting is is that that alchemy, from a different perspective, is ultra crucial to subsequent esoteric thought. It's very crucial to Freemasonry, which uses the same model of refinement to apply to the to the to the human being. And the when I started getting into a lot of the foundations of alchemy, I didn't realize that those were really the foundations of Hermeticism in general. A lot of alchemy goes back to a specific writing called the Emerald Tablet that was written, you know, sometime either in the medieval period, depending on who you believe, or all the way back in ancient Egypt. And it sort of lays out the hermetic idea, which is that that God or the uh, the supreme being has sort of disguised himself or himself in uh, reality, and that it's through this sort of refinement and what they call uh, adaptation that things are brought to increasing perfection perfection. And this is really the first uh, time that the idea occurs of as above, so below. This all comes from the Emerald Tablet. And so this sort of idea that that there are things that are sort of crude and that they have a more refined state and that that state becomes, you know, increasingly divine as it goes from the crude to the divine is is really the core of alchemy. And that that idea that that's refracted in all things is really important in, in the whole history of alchemy because it does quickly become a, a body of research about the spiritual evolution of the person themselves, right? And so a lot of people think of alchemy in the sense of uh, acquiring the Philosopher's Stone, which will give you the ability to turn uh, a base metal into gold or to to have a longer life, you know, and there's there's many many legends surrounding this, and, and and that goes into all all sorts of areas of esoteric research. A really important idea from it is this sort of refinement of the space material, which becomes the bedrock of Freemasonry, which is the idea that you have a rough ashlar, and that is being honed and refined to become a, a human that is much more 
in sync with the the divine will. And this, all of this refinement from sort of disturbance of creation that, that God has sort of created this really disturbed, but you can think of the Big Bang essentially as being this sort of huge explosion of chaos that is slowly manifesting and refining itself into increasingly interesting ways. And so that's that's the idea behind all of the degrees in, in Freemasonry. Uh, it's also behind a lot of ideas in, that, that become part of the spiritual stuff with the Blavatsky and theosophy and, and all of that. You know, it's it's interesting that that it it has such an interesting or such a uh, such a limited body of writing behind it, but how seriously that was taken. You know, so there was a uh, there was a translation of the Emerald Tablet in Isaac Newton's writings. It was really core to how he thought about everything, and if you think about it, it is a really sort of abstract idea that that plays well with the theory of evolution or the constructive law or any of those things that we've talked about that there is increasing order in a disordered world and that that all comes through the product of life that life is the organizing factor in these things but yeah that goes all the way back to hermes trismegistus if you go by that theory of it and so in in a lot of ways that is interesting because it's like it fits with any religion in which you have increasing perfection as a mechanic and that is itself an initiatory system right so a lot of the initiation the idea of initiation in, including these these initiations in in antiquity like the Eleusinian mysteries or, or anything like that that have this sort of goal of taking and shaking up the way you're seeing the world and then becoming, you know, in, in increasing congruence with the divine will or the will of the one mind. That is that uh, that is what initiation is. It's sort of taking you out of your individual goals and dreams and all of that and situating you in this matrix of, a, a, of cosmic evolution. And your own, your own spiritual path is linked to that path of you know refinement and so i think that that was already kind of something that that i was dealing with a few years ago with the breathwork stuff or with any of that it's like once you have that one experience in which you sort of see things for the first time that the way that they really are versus the way they appear to be it's like that is sort of orienting your whole uh worldview and so in a lot of these secret societies that have this initiation mechanic this this engineering that experience is the goal of the initiate right to get someone to where they are in, increasingly working on themselves they first have to see themselves for the first time and a lot of this literature alchemical literature relates to um, a lot of uh, Arabic literature on the same the same it was also alchemical which is where we get the, the term alchemy but it was uh, in the same area of secret societies and initiations like the Hashashim or, or these groups of Sufi mystics who were doing things that were engineering these altered states. And from that, they were figuring out how to engineer those altered states for other people in order to, you know, make them 
more in tune with their their own causes or, or their own worldview. I think in that sense, the story is it's strange that it's on so many levels because there's the the sort of alchemy in the writings of James Shelby Downard. There's the alchemy that you read about in this philosophical sense, and then especially post Enlightenment, there's a lot of uh, spiritual writing, and so it's more of a spiritual alchemy. And so it's weird that we're doing the same thing, or we're going through this same set of realizations in a really organic context. And so I don't know if the system or the, the you know, the super system that, that this is describing in a hermetic sense is rewarding the telling of these stories in which they become initiations themselves for other people. But it seems to be the case that in anyone or, or, or anyone packaging this information in the context of their time, is is being rewarded in this the propagation of that material so i i've always felt like our goal with the the penny roll stuff or the the end goal of whatever is you know is orchestrating this is to produce this initiatory vehicle in a sense that leads to a greater awakening for for people in however they are seeing these things and it's really through a simple a simple shift in perspective in how we're seeing the world in a way that's not causally linked, but rather is sort of semantically linked. And so I think that that's kind of key to to getting a, getting people oriented in that direction. And hopefully, you know, that's what we're doing. And I think that, you know, our execution of it and the success of our execution of it is really dependent on how well we, we build that vehicle out. You know, uh, it's going to be rewarded... <laughs> for for you know getting people uh to open their minds in that way or or maybe we didn't do well and it's it it doesn't but that's i think what we're trying to do the wizard of oz movie was released in 1939 by mgm movies was based on the book the wonderful wizard of oz by l frank Baum, published in 1900 l frank Baum was also a member of the theosophical society which is an organization based on occult research and the comparative study of religions. Baum had a deep understanding of theosophy and, consciously or not, created an allegory of theosophic teachings when he wrote The Wizard of Oz. The Theosophical Society mainly based its beliefs on the teachings of Helena P. Blavatsky, who sought to extract the common roots of all religions in order to form the universal doctrine. The main tenets of theosophy are thoroughly described in Blavatsky's works, Isis unveiled in the secret doctrine. And at the core of her teachings are the same tenets found in many other occult schools, the belief in the presence of a divine spark which can be unlocked through proper training and discipline and which can lead to spiritual illumination and a state of personal godliness. And of course, the ultimate goal is to return to the state of divinity from which we emerged. The same tenets can be found in Rosicrucianism, Freemasonry, and other mystery schools. In many ways, the entire story of The Wizard of Oz can be interpreted as an allegorical tale of the soul's path to illumination. The yellow brick road is the unknown path, the unfamiliar path, the path of mystery. The story starts with Dorothy living in Kansas, which symbolizes the material world, the physical plane where each one of us starts our spiritual journey. Dorothy feels the urge to go over the rainbow and is brought to Oz by a giant cyclone spiraling upward. 
representing the cycles of karma. And it can also be interpreted to represent the theosophical belief in reincarnation, the cycle of physical births and deaths of a soul until it's fit to become divine. It's also interesting to note that the yellow brick road begins as an outwardly expanding spiral. Many of the immigrants making a new life for themselves in America had a saying that the streets were lined with gold, and this translated to the yellow brick road. Oz itself might even be an abbreviation for Troy ounce, which is the standard for measuring gold. And the Emerald City mirrors the green color of the dollar. Dorothy's silver slippers represent, possibly, the silver standard that one faction of the nation wanted the U.S. to adopt. And the Yellow Brick Road represented the gold standard. The Yellow Brick Road also symbolizes what's known in Buddhism and Kabbalah as the Golden Path. The Golden Path that represents the path of the soul from egotism to enlightenment. You know, I think Helios was the, the first of its kind in that it was a meta-narrative ritual carried out. With, and look, I don't think Dana and Greg met, and Connor and those guys meant to carry out a ritual. But it didn't matter because that's what they were doing inadvertently. And you guys are kind of like the next offshoot of that and again you guys were trying to carry out ritual but in presenting your story you realize that you are part of the synchronous web that I would love to go into my side of it as well that just almost defies comprehension and you were connected to the outer people in a way that was, I mean, you can't even explain it in, in just rational terms. I, I think that was an example of the fact that we're all hitting on something here. I mean, there is something that is drawing us to this, whatever this is, and I can theorize the Thank <laughs> you. 
were all converged in Somerset in some way. And the weird thing for me was, you know, as a listener, and obviously I'm not like a normal audience member because I feel like I'm a part of this web in some way, but I feel like I was kind of almost participating in it by the mere act of listening, which was fascinating to me. My, the So I think that someone that knew about the Promise software is handing us some documents and saying, what can you figure out about these? And if we were using the Promise software, we'd probably figure out all kinds of strange things involving all of these account numbers and everything. But the software that we were developing was, uh, was called Nautilus, and it deals with a very similar system in which we're taking, using natural language processing, we're extracting huge amounts of data from documents and then associating them semantically with one another in like a virtual space. That is what we're doing to sort of see connections between things that are hard to visualize. So in a sense, it very, is very similar to the Promise software, but it's almost like someone is handing you this to see if you have that software. And, you know, Nautilus wasn't wasn't designed to do that that sort of financial analysis. Yeah, once, once we had received the documents, I, I did have suspicions that maybe they are giving us these documents not to see if Nautilus can figure out anything about these documents, but to see if we have an actual copy of the Promise software that was from the, the install and Chuck Hayes stuff. Is this some type of hoodwink from a cosmic joker that gold is involved? Is there a golden road, right? Are we on the golden road? Is this a, a, a form of initiation? I mean, like, what do you actually think about all this stuff? Because I don't think you and I have ever really talked about, like, we talk about initiation all the time, we talk about this stuff, but we've never been like, what the fuck do you think? I mean, like, do you think this is some form of initiation? Do you think this is a golden road? I, I don't know. Like, I think that when you look at um, a lot of, when you look at a lot of these stories, and this is something that I, when I was reading through I read a book on, and I think this is a really important book for people that are looking for it. There's a book called uh, Alchemy, the Great Work. It's a really short book by uh, Cherry Gilchrist. And it kind of outlines some of the core alchemical writings and thoughts. And when I read through that, and I was reading through a lot of the serendipity that was involved in a lot of these alchemical stories, especially in the dream literature, which there's a whole series of writings that are based on dreams and and decoding those dreams to find the process of of turning these metals into gold that that really struck me as being the hallmark of what we're experiencing the same sort of synchronicities that we're experiencing they were experiencing in getting to more and more deeper truths not just about uh, chemistry, but also about you know their own selves and the and the self. And this this notion may not just come from alchemy. This could be from a lot of guild structures that developed in the Middle Ages. I think that this could be true of Freemasonry too. If you think about someone, if you think about someone 
uh, who's been like, who's going to be selected to build the Temple of Solomon or the person that's going to be selected to build, you know, the White House or the, you know, or the, anything that, that can be built. You're going to pick the best people, right? And who are the best people? They're people who have already overcome all of the erratic things that would cause them to rush through a project and not have enough patience to get through it. The people who are selected are these master craftsmen that have to have already overcome their own inner demons to persistently and consistently perform better than any of the apprentices out there. You know, it's it's a very much a system of merit and this these these guilds and these structures of professionals are already probably, if you think about sportsmanship, this is a, this is kind of a sideways thing, but it's interesting. If you think about sportsmanship, the guys that are like running these basketball camps, these NBA players that have, you know, had all of their inner demons growing up in, in the city or, or whatever they were battling, the ones who really kind of succeed and, and, and do well are the ones that overcame their own spiritual issues to to become focused enough and not distracted by these other things in order to get there. And so anything that that has an element of greatness also has this vehicle through which the person can become more refined. And in sportsmanship, that's through, you know, local coaches who have semi-succeeded and you go up the ladder and you get to people who are, you know, have become even better at, at fighting their things. And that's not to say that every professional athlete is a great person but it is got to be true that every professional athlete made sacrifices of themselves to get better uh, to get good enough to 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 reach that level and if we think of these uh like institutions that seem ridiculous now like freemasonry or or or, you know bricklaying or whatever you you would want to think of it as there was definitely an overcoming of the self that was in these sort of upper tiers of the of these guilds that would lend themselves to being becoming instructions and through that you know you get these sort of rituals that are involved in these things and especially most of all uh, engineering a way to create the initiation itself for the person for the first time to be put in a position where they they question the reality of things and this this idea of of engineering these moments goes way, way back to at least to the to the Hashashim who were who were doing these elaborate setups to engineer enough fear and enough confusion in someone to have them sort of go into a disassociated state. And in some of these cases they were they were pretending that someone was beheaded, right? And that and then they had the talking head, which was really a person buried up to their neck in a torch-lit room, and this, the, and so they have a body, right, without a head, and next to it there's a head on the floor that's talking to this person and then giving them these instructions. The person is so disoriented because it's a real decapitated body but a talking head on the floor, right? They can't even process it. So then the instructions almost cut through all of the the battles that or or the or the rationality that the person has at that time and they're sort of perceiving the truth as it is and that's sort of the bedrock for freemason things much later it's and supposedly the knights templar used a lot of these in combination with some mind altering drugs to engineer these experiences 
And so I think what we want to do is, if we're thinking of Penny Roll as an initiation in that sense, what we're saying is that these events are so weird and so strange that there's no way you could think they were engineered by us or by even one specific person. They're so crazy that you almost have to look at it and you have such a cognitive dissonance about it that you almost have to to consider really alternative explanations for how things are. And I think that that is really the the, the goal that that of the material that we're producing now is to sort of convey that experience by a bunch of real people who are going through it and they're chronicling it in real time. And that's, that happened. Those things happen. They make no sense. In a lot of cases, you know, they lead to little offshoot, you know, investigations that themselves aren't really productive, but the experience itself is so bizarre and is taking us on such a journey and more and more deeply into this esoteric literature that's already out there. That's undeniable that it was connected from the beginning to that, even though, from the beginning, we're looking at it from another angle. You know, we're saying, are there crazy cultists out there doing things? But as you dig more and more into it, you're becoming more and more in tune with the esoteric mindset, even though none of that stuff was really there. So it's almost like a sort of one of those handshell games where you're trying to guess, you know, which seashell the ball is under, you know? Uh, it's it's moving you along with it. And at the end, you know, you're, you're not the same as you were at the beginning, so... I don't think it's a stretch of the imagination to interpret reality as a decentralized system of observed data. We are the compilers decoding the information presented around us, confirming each of the blocks of reality. It's a digitally cryptological way to look at how we function in relationship to our environment and active existence in a specific area of space and time, defining it by observing and mining the data present in the immediate space-time. But now we're surrounding ourselves with cryptological devices that are constantly compiling and decompiling, decoding vast strings of presumably random numbers. No doubt in all that randomness, there are some strange synchronicities. And with all of these decoders situated all around us, are we decoding reality? Is the veil thinning because we're mining all the threads? Are synchronicities increasing in our world? Is the Mandala effect a noticeable phenomena because we're constantly mining reality through the proliferation of cryptological devices. But does that peel back reality for all of us? Is reality even more malleable and diluted through these increasing cryptographic functions? Are Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and the methods for their harvesting actually leading to the erosion of the fabric of observable reality? And in our case, is it possible that what's happening What we've been experiencing in the Pennyroyal mystery isn't limited to us. Maybe this is leading to an invitation for all of us to start down our own roads. Pennyroyal is written and produced by your host, Nathan Paul Isaac. Associate producers are Darian West and Kyle Cadell. Original musical score by Philip Clonch. Edited and mixed by Boone Williams. Sponsored by Jarfly Brewing Company and the International Paranormal Museum and Research Center. If you're interested in joining the investigation, 
and diving deeper into the story, visit pennyroyalpodcast.com and support the show by becoming a member of the Liminal Lodge. Thanks for listening and keep digging.